0: I had a tough time figuring out what to teach today. Not because there isn't so much good stuff in this portion, but actually because there's so much good stuff in this portion. We are in our final week of the book of Genesis. Can anyone tell me what the name of this Torah portion is? Vayechi. Vayechi. All right. And we are in the triennial, meaning we're at the beginning of this portion. So we'll be looking at the basically the first, like, uh 30 lines or whatever 47 uh 28 through 4822. And in this there is a lot that happens. In fact, I often feel the same pressure the last 3 weeks of Genesis. The Joseph story has so many different directions that we can go. It's our last vignette of sorts before we get into this much longer story with the Exodus and Moses as our protagonist. And so there's really different ways to cling to this material. And so one of the tricky parts is figuring out what direction do you want to go? Uh, There's a book, uh, the Reform Movement put out a book called Voices of Torah. They have one and two, and it's literally two paragraph versions or perspectives of Torah portions, and there's like... 15 per Torah portion, and it just keeps going through. And every time I read one, I was like, ooh, that's the idea. Let's run with that. And then I'd read the next one and be like, no, that's not the idea. Let's go with that one. Because there's such a depth to the way we tell the Joseph narrative. And so uh, Genesis essentially is going to double down on that feeling that we have, that there's so many different ways to tell the story, and it's going to end on a cliffhanger. So much is unresolved when it comes to Genesis, right? The plot of most of Genesis is driven by two promises which God gives to Abraham. The first promise is progeny and the next promise is land. And these two promises will happen over and over again, different ways of saying them, different perspectives of showing them. But after three generations of siblings fighting, things happening, you're like, oh man, my family does not seem that crazy when you look compared to these stories, which I think is the gift of Torah, by the way, if we're yeah, going to call it yeah. what it is. The gift of Torah. Um, I often tell people when they say, what is the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament? I say, well, in Torah our characters are deeply flawed. In fact, their deep flaws are both necessary and a gift because by being flawed, we all have the opportunity to engage and still have a relationship to God if these flawed characters could. And as well, we take a look and go, okay, my situation's not so bad. My kid might've lied to me about sneaking out of the house, but they didn't put on a disguise and steal their brother's birthright, so we're still in a better spot, right? The stories give us a lot of permission to feel good about the life that we live, and I think that gift is really necessary to remember. And so we have the ceiling quarrelry, we have the different conflicts, and all the sons of Jacob in this piece are going to inherit. They all become the bearers of a blessing, which is a beautiful response to seeing a few generations get that wrong. And Jacob is no stranger to that getting it wrong because when he successfully steals the birthright, which already caveat, is it stealing? Should it have gone to his brother? I don't know, but in his parents' eyes, it was there was a formula to follow. He doesn't see his brother for 50 years. So he obviously knows the pain that it can cause and so his notion is to make sure everyone gets the blessing. Now, let's call it what it is. It's a little bit ironic. The same guy that uh, treats his one son like he's so special that the rest of them want to sabotage him, throw him in a ditch, and then sell him into slavery. It's a little bit ironic that he's also the one that comes to this realization that they all deserve a blessing. But we can give him credit for the notion that this took time to discover, that it, it takes a lifetime to build up this wisdom. And so Jacob gives all the kids blessings, but we're, but we are in the wrong land. Now they're sitting in Egypt and all the children are receiving these blessings, but we haven't let, we've left Israel for Egypt. And we remember when God told Abraham at the covenant between the different parts, we know we're in for a time of slavery. We also hear of that. The unresolved promise of the land is going to be the driving force for the rest of the Torah. So now we have one half of the promise already starting to be lived out, and the other half of the promise becomes our driving force for the next several books. So, tradition has it that redemption from Egypt happened to, thinks, the action of who? Anyone know who our tradition states is actually responsible for our redemption from Egypt, responsible for our promise from God? Does anyone know what our sources tend to say? The sources tend to say that it's actually the Israelite women that are to uh, to the reward. Yet, yeah, right? Like you didn't know this, but this is. Right. So we're going to go over a few other pieces. First, in a piece of Talmud, they say in reward for the righteous women of that generation, Israel was redeemed from Egypt. It was the women who earned that redemption, according to Talmud. The promise of the land is fulfilled because the women understand the plot. Likewise, it's the women who drive the plot of the entire book of Genesis that we're going to finish today. The matriarchs are the ones that understood the importance of the promise of progeny. From Sarah's issues, the line of the Israelites, while Abraham is the father of many nations, Rebecca converses with God about her pregnancy and ensures that the correct son will receive her husband's blessing, even though her husband feels it should go to the other son. Rachel and Leah control their husband's procreation. They they breed, they basically freedom like a sheep, right? They they, they each take a handmaid and they say, oh, now there's four of us. Let's just get this out there. Let's start this blessing that God has promised. All of the driving force of accomplishing the first half of the promise from God comes from the women. Similarly, most of the action in Genesis is driven by the need to procure the correct marriages. All of the, the driving force of Genesis is actually the female characters. I want to pause there for a moment. There's a few things that are worth kind of unpacking. The first of which is this notion of what it means to fulfill the promise. Already, our tradition is telling us something that I think is deeply misunderstood in most components of faith. When we pray, And some of you might have heard me speak about this during services before. When we pray, we're not asking that God fulfill a promise without us producing an action. We're in a partnership with God. We're not just in this experience in which God has full control and we simply wait around for promises to be fulfilled. It says it right in this text the tradition points out that it's the female characters, the women of our text that drive the, the promise to happen, which means we're in partnership with God. And that proof starts in Genesis that if we don't take certain actions, if we don't realize that if we want the world to be different, that we have to shape and plan and strategize, then God just can't make the world the way we want it. That's not actually in the deal with the way in which God makes a promise to the people. The the promise is a partnership, and it's modeled right from the beginning of Genesis. Any thoughts or questions on that? I see some faces. Some of you are a little bit far away, so I want to just tell. But For me, it actually
1: begins with the story of Adam and Eve, where basically God creates them with free will, because God could have created them, quote, perfect, unquote, kind of like automatons, but god in the story says you have free will you can choose and the minute you can choose now we we enter a whole other area of a partnership
0: yeah beautiful yeah judith are you let's see if you're muted
2: i i don't think so
0: you are unmuted great
2: okay uh, it's very interesting to me your description of the women being so powerful in this episode and i appreciate that so much about reconstructionism when was it that we started including the matriarchs in our prayers and in our incantations at different services when the the other orthodox or the orthodox and the conservative don't do that yet do they So the conservative
0: have movement it? the conservative movement has it in their siddur uh they've actually taken a bit of a um, the strategy of the Reform Movement's playbook of here are two options, pick what you would like. Um, so they actually have both the matriarchs in and the matriarchs not in um, for each kind of group to pray as they will. And this is a movement that's really only in the last half a century okay. uh, that we've included the matriarchs. Now, what I will say is this. I'm not even so sure this is the Reconstructionist perspective, what I'm sharing with you right now. This, t- this text is Talmud. This is straight up the Talmud saying the women drove the plot because if the women weren't so – like in each episode, it's the women that focused on the procreation. Now that could be seen as a misogynist trope. Right. Like, let's be very real. We are choosing in part how we're seeing this. It could be seen as a misogynist trope that the women's only thing to worry about was the progeny. And right. yet, because the progeny is the main guarantee and promise of this section, that, that puts a little bit of, um, instability into that, uh, viewpoint of it being just misogynist because everyone is focused on that. How can they become a great nation without it? I will also say that. This is unfortunately passive characters. In what we're seeing at the beginning of this, and we're going to go in deeper, it's saying it's the women driving it, and yet they aren't the lead characters of these stories. And they, and they maybe should have been more so. I mean, there's a, a great book, um, called After Abel by Michal Lemberger. It's a book of modern day Midrash in which every single chapter is the voice of a female character that did not have enough voice heard. It's a really interesting book. If you haven't uh, seen it before, it's definitely worth looking into. It's a short read. It's not a really heavy read. It's a small book, but it gives a voice to each. Each chapter gives a voice to a different female character and really adds some depth into the way in which we see the story.
2: It seems the only way we've heard some of these stories is through popular literature like The Red Tent by Diamant and and some other books, but women were not given the starring roles, so to speak, in in the Torah.
0: Right. And, and there's there's many reasons for this, right? Like we can just yeah. call it what it is that with history and the way in which the formation of these things there, there didn't seem to be a focus on uh, the understanding of what representation meant. I think if you ask the rabbis who craft Talmud, they say this this is representation. We're we're giving full credit to that, but it's still through a masculine voice and it's still without concern for what was the thoughts or behaviors to get there.
2: And it's very recent. It's very recent that it's been recognized as you say, in the last half century. So,
0: and and now we're seeing a real, what? Well, that's the exact right, right? It's, it's written by men. And so when it's something written by now, there is uh, a few cool things going on. One, uh, there is a project. It's about a decade in already. It'll probably take longer because all the people who are adding into this, uh, project are very busy people. Um, but there is an entire Talmud commentary being written by female Talmud scholars. And that's, uh, I think one important piece of that. Uh, Tamara Eskenazi and other scholars as well. I mean, the green, uh, Torah commentary that that's some people are reading here think. is also, uh, through, through a female voice. Yes.
3: But aren't, aren't women, Maybe this is not the same thing, but but less culpable at
0: the same time for, like, the golden calf and other... So that's a really interesting perspective, oh, is that we do often talk about female voices being marginalized in text, and I never hear a conversation about female blame being marginalized in the text. But you're absolutely right, especially with moments like the golden calf, though, for the record... If the men were the ones that were making assertions and decisions and, and doing the actual public prayer, they were probably the ones making the decision to melt all the jewelry down. There's a joke in there somewhere figuring out, like, the conversation of agreeing to melt all the jewelry down. But it was likely still more masculine-driven, though it's a very fair point, is that there is a flip side to that, and that would be culpability. Um, the other thing I would say, it was in the other book I was reading, I can, I can see if someone can read the book, and there's actually a connection to that story of Eden. And there's actually a connection to the root word, uh scale, I believe, but I, I would need to double read it, in that when they first see Eden and they imagine this idea of the fruit and the fruitfulness and the ability to multiply, and that we then see that word again at the end of this portion, back inside of Ahih, when Jacob, though in the, the character of Israel, uh the same route to see. He basically sees to fruition the promise that begins and the excitement that begins with Adam and Eve and this notion of, of having a future and being fruitful and multiply and becoming a nation. Jacob, with his eyes dimmed towards the end of his life, is able to fulfill that. And so there's a really beautiful connection between those two that is uh played out. Um, but by the time we get to this week's portion, because now we're back to studying this week's portion, we've lost the women. All this credit to the women that goes through Genesis, the story of the different matriarchs, we've lost the women. In fact, they disappear near the beginning of the Joseph story after the story of Tamar and the wife of Potiphar. It doesn't seem to matter whom the sons of Israel marry. We don't read it. It's not of real concern. No one's paying attention to the production of progeny anymore. For the first time, there's no one to drive the story forward uh, uh, towards the fulfillment of God's two promises, and, and it shows, right? The story stagnates until women pick up the narrative again in Exodus. And that's something worth recognizing. The end of this story is a drastically male-heavy story in which they are – Happening to finally come in touch with certain emotional aspects, recognizing and, and feeling um, remorse for the way that they acted all these years and, and really having to come to the consequence of, of losing all these years together. But when it comes to driving the story forward, we're not driving the story forward. In this week's portion, Jacob is doing something far more specific than that. Jacob is stating his end of life wishes. He's making it clear. He's being deliberate. He's make, he's looking his son in the eyes and saying, promise me this. And in fact, the rabbis wrestle with that and say that Joseph and Midrash says back, don't ask me to promise you because now you're taking away my ability to do that out of love. Now I have to do this out of a vow. And if you adjust trust trusted that, I do love you. It's almost as if Jacob needs to, un, to needs to know that Joseph is going to fulfill his promises, which means we're not moving a story forward right now. Right now we're actually looking at a really important part of storytelling, which is closing out pieces of story, which is how we end parts of relationship, which is how we choose to hold ourselves and interact at the end of our lifetimes. And I, I think what really jumps out to me in that moment is what is the intention and the drive behind such clear directions for end of life and what will happen after Israel passes. Why is Israel so deliberate? Why is Jacob so deliberate in saying, this is where I want to be. This is how I want you to do it. Promise me you're going to do it. What is the Torah's intention of illustrating that for us? Continuity. Okay.
1: Continuity. And, uh, so it's not, it, It's not an end,
0: but it's a connective to what is going to follow. Okay. Okay, so you're thinking narratively the Torah does that for us to have a continuity. Promise me you'll bring me back to the land because what does that do? That guarantees at some point that we'll move back to the land. So as a narrative mechanism, that makes some sense. Why else, if we see Torah as an example and a guide for our own behaviors and our own understanding of life, why else would Jacob be so deliberate and specific?
4: Well, first of all, I like the word intentionality, that, that that you've lifted it up. I think the answer is in the blessing to Ephraim and Menashe. Okay. Menashe is the older son,
0: Ephraim is the younger. Right, so the part you're referencing here is that he takes his right hand and he puts it on the younger, and he says, starts the blessing, and Joseph says, wait, wait, Father, but he's the younger son. Exactly. And, and Jacob says back? I'm doing it the way I want to do it. They're both getting a blessing. Relax. Right. I'm not going to cause another conflict. But the younger here, he will have a, a a more fruitful future, and therefore he's getting the first of this blessing.
4: And And the way I would interpret it, through a Reconstructionist perspective, is that tradition is tradition. But like you said, the partnership and the ability to make change, intentionality yeah. is underlined within that
0: blessing. And I think following that thread of the idea of intentionality and partnership, I question whether or not that deliberate nature is a need of Jacob's or an acting love for his son, Joseph. Let's really think about this here. I've always told people that Jewish life cycle moments are never about the star. Your bar mitzvah, it's not about you, kid. Your parents are looking at B roll of your entire life in their head right now. You've been thinking about this for like a year and a half. So between the two of you, your parents win. It's been much more emotional. Want to go back even further? A bris. I'll admit, not a fun day for parents. But to be truth be told, I've done, I've had two bris now in my, in my, uh, for my sons. They both cried louder when the diaper came off and the chill than they did from the procedure itself. So again, not about the baby, about the parent realizing you can't protect them from all of life. In fact, sometimes you have to put them specifically in these situations in which you know something might hurt you more than it hurts them, and it's part of growth. Marriage, again, not about the couple getting married. It's about the parents and their family realizing, oh, things are about to really change. The dynamic in which we were used to is being shifted at its core, and we have to get on board or have family conflicts for the rest of life. Likewise, a funeral is not about the person who's passed. When we say chesped, when we tell the story, when we have a eulogy, it's not it's not for the person who's passed away to hear a reflection of their story. It's for their loved ones to begin the transformation of how to live on this earth without the presence of the person they loved. Every single life cycle moment is about the other people in the room. So Lee end of life instructions, uh, allow the people surviving the grief uh, to to start that grieving and immediately uh, kind of process rather than be preoccupied with the details. That's a really important piece of it. The more specific end of life direction that we give our loved ones doesn't mean they're going to follow it. In fact, I don't even think our tradition intends for them to always follow it to the T. It's that what we're giving is the gift of conversation. I mean, you could even say, who is a
3: parent to, to give the gift? I mean, you know, a flawed person, you know, I mean, you can think of Jacob as a flawed, flawed person. Um, who is he to like decide what the fate of the, these, all these, you know. Yeah. uh, I mean, it's really God's job.
0: I mean, I reflect on this when I when I meet with young couples uh, that are getting married. I we talk about uh, living wills, not just a will and testament, but a living will, which is the non-medical side of a medical directive. It's what do you want? Uh, what do you want me to know in case you are unable of telling me how you want something done? And I always explain to them that's not because you need to follow it to a T. Do you follow what your spouse says all the time as is? Do you never disagree? Yes, I see a nod over there. Uh, but but I explain what it is, is it's the gift of conversation. If you were in a moment of extreme stress, not knowing how to care for your loved one, who's always been the person you bounced your ideas off of, this is a gift. This is the gift of knowing their intention behind it, their thoughts, how they want it done. Then go about the way you've always done it. Disagree or agree with them. Push back or don't. But what's going on here is the gift Jacob is giving his son a gift. He's saying, "This is how I want it done," so that Joseph doesn't have to go, "I wonder how I want it done." But he's not giving a gift to say Reuben. He's angry at him. You know what I mean? So, yes, there there is there is that side of it of like it's the complication of having over a dozen children. I'm overwhelmed at 3, I can't imagine a dozen, but that's but that's definitely true. Where this leads to me is I often hear people say I I don't, I don't, I don't care what happens once I pass, do what you want, which in its first glance is an, an awfully loving, I trust you do it your way kind of thing. But then when we think about exactly what we're saying here, the stress and strain of finding how do I step left and then right when coping with this uh really huge emotional burden of loss, we often find that directions are really helpful. Our tradition is really blunt about it. We're very blunt about it. Here's how you're going to do it. Here's a timeline that you're going to follow. Here's the shiva you're going to do next. After shiva, it's only been a week. You're still not really there. Take a month. Be halfway in and out. Keep showing up to services. Make sure that the community is seeing you. After your month, you know what? Take 11 more. Take 10 and a half, 11 more months. Go through a whole year cycle. Feel that at each holiday. Start to calibrate how you're going to deal. And after a year, we still know at least once a year. It's going to be a little hard, but no one says seven days later, get going with it. Get all the instructions done. And so I actually think this is all about that. This piece is about the deliberate, uh, specific pointing out of how something should be done, not because it even matters that it's done that way, but because it gives the gift and the opportunity to show that respect and love by following that. And it gives the gift to your loved one of saying, don't, don't think so much. This week, just, just follow the to-do list. There's a lot of comfort in that. Is there any thoughts? I see some heads nodding. I see some heads, uh, possibly gyrating. That could be a shaking as well. Um, so any, any thoughts on, on that kind of piece? Okay. I will tell you, thinking back to, uh, what Bert said earlier about connecting it to the Garden of Eden, I also think there's a lineage question here of sometimes there's also There's a comfort in knowing that you don't complete the entire task. They start by looking at the idea of a great nation with, I mean, Abraham, but really the Garden of Eden. Like when they see this garden, they see this idea of paradise. Their first perspectives of paradise get shifted and questioned along the way. They lose paradise quickly because their curiosity takes it away from them. And after that, after that, we see these generations trying to figure things out all the way until Jacob figures out and Jacob becomes the end point of the continuity of that first promise from God, that this is something beautiful, the opportunity to be part of a great nation.
2: Daniel. Yes. Um, regarding your last question about any comments on the, the, the rules, the procedures that are suggested with death. I, I've had a little practice with it and I, I found the rules very comforting. They took a lot of burden off me, off the living, not certainly not off the deceased, but it gave some comfort to see an order of things and you could do with them as, as you chose, but it was very comforting in a state of shock that most people are after a death to have things kind of in order so that you had a path suggested for you that worked. I remember when Steve Rubin came and after Shiva and walked me down the driveway and onto the street. We walked up and down the street a little bit to say the world is still here.
0: Yep, at the end of Shiva. Yes, walk around the block.
2: Right, and come so- back. Yeah.
0: I think so it's I, the rules. I, I, I think it's the I think it's the rules, but I think it's more than just the providing of rules. Yes. It's the awareness of the psychological relevance of those rules. And it's not the Not all traditions do it this way.
2: Right. It's the association with the community also that is so powerful. How when you get together the object is to tell stories about the person who's died to keep that spirit alive in the heart of the person who's grieving. They're they're psychologically very strong suggestions.
0: Yeah. You know, if we were to dive in deeper, there's, there's all kinds of pieces of this. If you even compare different religions, open caskets and not uh, the yeah. process of how things happen. You know, in the Catholic world, the order of operations is, is nearly different. You have the gathering and then you, the wake piece. It's almost in reverse. And then right. what, what Judaism says is like the heart, it's, it's going to get heart. Just start with the funeral. And then be surrounded by community and then realize the community is there and then tether yourself to that community in different ways as you explore I mean, there's a really profound beauty to it. But I think that's why it's one of the two promises is progeny and land in that those two things are mechanisms of guarantee of community. that's what this is. Right. These two things are guarantee of community, and this first book of Genesis is building up community, and then ironically, the book of Exodus is proof that community matters. Right? They go through this experience together.
1: Yes. Uh, It's interesting. The Garden of Eden starts with a couple, and this is about a family, and Exodus is about a nation. Yeah. And so you have the evolution from the individual on forward, but... One of the things that I'm just hearing you talk, the, the purpose of progeny is in the Jewish tradition, as I understand it, is to pass on godliness from one generation to another. And when God says to Abraham, I will pick you, it will be so that you can tell your children. And ultimately, we have the via hafta, which is at the center of a lot of our prayers, which says, teach your children teach these to your children. And so this is part of the passing on. Each generation doesn't live independently of the prior one. And the family becomes the most important Jewish unit,
0: at least for me. I think the the other component for us to kind of hold is the notion that When we do things, even gifts for others, there is, of course, a selfish component. Now, at the time of of Jacob, one could question if the selfish component is that he has a plan he wants to fulfill. I'm actually talking about God here. If the promise that God makes is to uh, be of a full great nation and to be to fruitful and multiply, and we know that God needs to have this partnership with humanity that have partnership with the Jewish people and that that partnership is part of what guarantees God's viability and that the rest of this world continue to be cared for. Then isn't God just promising that there's future partners is not part of this that God's promise of 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 generations of people being that there is always going to be another group to be in partnership with God to care for this world and to fulfill the the goals that essentially God has when creating the world and part of our job is to pass it on from generation to
1: generation yeah but that, that that's built in even though sometimes
0: the next generation doesn't appreciate our advice as much as we appreciate giving it uh well i think that there's another piece there which is that the taking of advice doesn't mean the following through of advice um and I, but that's what's happening in this whole thing right when we give instruction we want to make sure our voice is heard i don't know that our voice is followed that's a whole different story um my my, my son's already proving that to me um and he's not six uh so it's a whole lifetime of being ignored that i'm looking forward to um now i will say this we started with the fact that the women move forward this narrative and there's a lot to be said about that as well because our parsha does contain remnants of the matriarchs jacob shortly asking after asking joseph to bury him in israel which we'll get into why he does that actually pauses to first explain what happened to his mother we read in there, it says, when I was coming from Padan Ammon, uh, your mother Rachel, she died on me in the land of Canaan, still a short distance from Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. So we know in the land is Jacob's beloved. That's to help us with two things. One, there almost seems to be a justification that he needs to explain to Joseph what happened to his mother. But two, because we actually know that she's died earlier, if we follow the story, that she, that Benjamin's alive, what it really says is, here is yet another driving motivation of now getting back to the land, that returning to his beloved is, in fact, the drive to make their way back to Israel, to make their way back to the land of Canaan, which will drive our story forward once again. Soon after, Jacob instructs all of his sons to bury him in the cave of Machpelah, which he identifies as the place where Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There, Isaac and his wife Rebecca were buried. There, I buried Leah. At first glance, the women appear in memory. Why? Because they've passed. But even in death, they're still working to achieve God's promises. Our, our storyteller is very deliberate in making sure that it's the female characters that are consistently tied to the driving of this narrative they are the ones pulling jacob and joseph's bodies back into the land of canaan more radically it's the need for a place in which to bury their bodies which leads to the beginning of the fulfillment of god's promise of the land why because abraham bought that land to bury sarah And so the beginning of the opportunity to own the land starts from this loving act and at its core was the motivation of a love for the female character, the matriarch of Sarah. The Israelites first stake in Israel was a burial plot. The matriarchs possessed the land of Israel long before the Israelites returned to the land of Israel. So what does that say for the way in which we see this piece of our tradition? The matriarchs Possessed the land of Israel long before the Israelites returned to it. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean,
3: uh, it's it's not directly, but I read an essay that was really interesting about cultures. And you know, some cultures call their country the fatherland, and some countries call them call it a female, the female, the motherland. And there's usually distinct differences in the way in the way those cultures. See themselves so i'm just thinking of the you know the the the, the fact that the mothers are buried there uh, th- that it is a sort of motherland idea rather than a, a fatherland um, uh, you know c- kind of um, way of of looking at things so um, seeing the seeing it as a um, uh, rather than something <sighs> to be loyal to and to fight to, but more as a, I mean, I, I, it would be a longer discussion to discuss yeah. what the difference between a fatherland and a motherland is, but, but it would, I would, it would, it made me think that this, this would put, um, you know, the land of Israel in the motherland uh, yeah. column
0: basically. And our tradition has all kinds of narrative and um, wordplay when it comes to uh, the womb and to pregnancy and to i mean you see it at the beginning of exodus i mean uh, scholars across time have agreed that the exodus story is a birth of the nation well it's 40
3: uh, 40 years uh, right and so there's a, there's, the, a lot, there's
0: a weeks, lot there's a lot in there and i think it's because
3: and also there's the passing <laughs> not to get too graphic about it but there's the forging through one Narrow passage. Correct. Right? No, no, this is, end. this
0: is very much so. That's, uh, that's, that's where the connection is and the scholars agree with that connection. And I think that that's also because there's always been a celebration of this idea of procreation and having a family. And that's, by the way, again, not always done with the most nuance in the world. The, 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 the male writers were often a, a little Blunt or lacking that savvy, but for the most part, there's a really beautiful connection in there. Well, well the idea of the
3: Jubilee, also the the land restoring itself is a very um motherland kind yeah. of idea. It needs to rest, basically. You know, uh um, anyways. Yeah. It's, 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 an, it's
2: also kind of the basis of the matrilineal society. The land belongs to the women, and the births belong to the women, and Judaism goes through the matrilineal line.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know if we've talked about this before. That, it's, it's always difficult for me because on the, the, the depth and history side of that study, in Torah, who does the lineage go through? We're giving credit to the female characters here. The writers are very clear about it that they drive this, they drive forward the story, but it's son of who? Son of the father. The it's man. always the father in Torah. And so then the question gets into, when did that pivot change? And unfortunately, uh, through my research and understanding, it's it's actually not so pleasant. It's It's the notion that at some point, this really came down to inheritance and wealth and the rabbis not trusting, not having a guarantee as to who the father was. And because of that, they didn't want false claims. They didn't want you to say, oh, that's the father. That person is Jewish. I I I get part of the plot. So they said instead, you are Jewish if your mother is Jewish because the only thing we can trust is who your mother is. Now, I don't love that because that says in there that there was actually a, a, a distrust in the mother to be being truthful about who the father was. And that matriarchal dissent really comes more from a need for structural guarantee and a hesitation and lack of trust than it does through celebration. Now, we've done a good job of reorienting it. I want to give us full credit there. But I do want to acknowledge that sometimes some of those things do stem from an idea that is less than celebrated. And I think matriarchal dissent and the reason why I am such a proponent of both matriarchal and patriarchal descent is that I actually think it is a hindrance of equality because it truly came down to, well, we can't trust that she's being honest about who the father is. Um, now, that being said, that doesn't change the other parts we're talking about. There is still a very clear celebration of this idea of the miracle of birth and what it accomplishes and what it builds and, and everything along with it. But I do think matriarchal descent specifically is a distraction from a lot of that.
1: Did the issue of rape have anything to do with this? I mean, these were times when, in warfare, when Jews were attacked, or other people were attacked, it was not uncommon for women to be raped. In this case, a rape, the child of a raped woman would be considered Jewish or a momser?
5: So, that's... I I mean, no, this is a really complicated question.
0: Um, In... There is, there is exceptions to those rules inside of our text. Uh, but unfortunately, it's also one of the wonky pieces of why go through and call it matriarchal descent when you actually still have to have quite the concern about who the father is. Um, again, I celebrate that our tradition has found a way to hold and nurture this idea of matriarchal descent in a positive, but it's history of where it comes from is somewhat frustrating in that sense um but no you're absolutely right there's also the question of like is it because you don't trust the the mother or is it because there's some skepticism in there due to some debaucherous actions right like there's 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 question there too but the only way to guarantee the judaism was through the mother because the mother is jewish and you know it's the mother because she's giving birth to the baby that was really where it stems from yes yes
5: Margo here, I just wanted to say something that I think kind of ties in with, with this part of what we're talking about. Uh, years ago, when my oldest granddaughter, my oldest son's oldest child um, was a little one, and at camp, she used to call me and she'd say to me, uh, Grammy, she'd wanna start a conversation. So she'd say, Grammy, you know what? And I'd say, what? And she'd sit, and then she'd go on to tell me something. Well, this time she said, my mommy changed my camp. She was a little person and going to day camp. So she said to me, you know what? So I said, what? So she said, it's a Jewish camp. So I said, oh, that's, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And so she says to me, yeah, but you know what? I said, what? She said, I'm not even Jewish. So I said to you, oh to her, oh yes, you are, your daddy's Jewish. And um so I was in that mode uh 30 some odd years ago, uh saying to myself, Of course this child is Jewish, her her daddy's Jewish. Yep. So I just want to throw that in <laughs> to uh into this mix and yeah
0: i think that that's been a, a a complication that's been being wrestled with for years and years and is still being wrestled with to an extent not in the reconstructionist and reform movements um mm-hmm. but but wrestled with nonetheless so why did the women disappear at the end of genesis let's go back to that question do we need to lose the plot in order to find it again is that is that really necessary and one hint if we take that question can be found in the way Joseph is characterized in Jacob's blessing for him. In that piece, we read from the God of your fathers, may God aid you. Shaddai, may God bless you. Blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and the womb. Jacob passes to Joseph all of the good of Genesis from the creation story, the heavens and the deep, and progresses to the women, the drivers of this action. We find these same ideas at the end of Torah, all the way in Parsha Hazinu, which will almost bookend parts of the Genesis story, right? Because in Azinu, the heavens and the earth are called to listen to all that God has done for Israel, including actions as mother to them. So right here at the beginning of the story, at the end of Genesis, the beginning of the rest of our narrative as as Exodus takes off, that Joseph's blessing, it's an odd, it's odd language, right? You're not just blessed from above, but blessings of the deep that lies below. That's, if you don't connect it to Genesis, that starts to actually poke a different curiosity for people as to what that's really entailing. But it's this notion of blessing from all directions. So Jacob invites Joseph To be the missing matriarch. That's an interesting point here. Jacob invites Joseph to be the tethering link between these different stories of our mothers. Not to actually be the matriarch, but to act as the driver of the plot and the nurturer of the emerging Israelites. It's Joseph's body being returned that's really the focal point when they leave. It's Joseph's body that we talk about being carried out when the slaves flee from Egypt. And so here, it's that this is the only moment in which it's this male character taking the placeholder of where the female characters have taken us, being the driver of the next part of this promise.
4: Well, let's go a little further. I think that's why the promise to carry the bones back to Canaan, back to Sarah, back to the burial site Ah, is how the story continues. The bones are a big deal. And that's why 400 years later they make the journey north. But I, I think this bones
0: is a huge proof
4: text to what you're arguing for here. Yeah.
0: And I think it's also Genesis is a gift of Torah because Unlike Exodus, certainly unlike Leviticus, and pretty true in Numbers as well, there is a lot less creative writing inside of those parts of our Torah. Here, we get the chance to see symbolism, play on words, poetry, uh, the idea that Joseph could be the missing matriarch. Well, that sounds so silly because he's not a matriarch. But when you see this idea that actually there's hints of this earlier that he was a softer, more emotional person, that often he's depicted as uh, being unlike the manliness of his brothers, there was probably some hints earlier in the text as well that Joseph would have a different uh, perspective and mindset to be the person to drive the plot forward when there was no one to drive the plot forward. And so I, when I read this material, I see all this as a question of continuity. I see all this as different experiences of how we express our love, our connection, our commitment, and our support for those who we care about, whether that be while we're alive, whether that be the direction we give for when we've passed. And not only our loved ones, our community as well, that our community learns how to cope with loss how to know and show up to support their other fellow community members to cope in loss. This story talks a lot about that idea, that the end of a story is not an endpoint, but it's a driver to the beginning of the next story. And that's the obligation that we have. Uh, Any thoughts or questions on this piece of text that we've looked at this morning? Dave? You
6: know, one of the things that I've thought about over the last couple of weeks and you just sort of touched on it is the Joseph narrative. Joseph starts off as again, I forgot your exact wording, but it could be seen as sort of a weak, um, ineffectual character that just doesn't have the manliness of his brothers. How do the rabbis explain how powerful he got? What we've never really discussed what metamorphosis took place in Joseph's life that he became the second most powerful man in Egypt. It doesn't seem logical that that really could
0: occur. Or that a climb to that level of power would never have been through brute muscles and machismo, right? Like this is part of the, the nuance, the, uh, the careful matriculated like strategy had to come from someone who didn't have that same strength and and skill set that had a different skill set and perspective um but no you're certainly right it it doesn't beg it, it doesn't answer the question of how joseph did it except for that joseph never took credit for the dreams Right. Now this is a slightly different perspective than what we're talking about this morning, but it's worth pointing out in all of Joseph's interpretations. Joseph says, I just interpret the dreams. You're having the dreams. Someone else is giving you the dreams. Joseph never says, wow, aren't you so lucky that I could provide you this dream? And I think again, that speaks to his ability to, and by the way, it's through growth, not need to be the center point. When Joseph is a teen, he needs to be the center point. He has dreams that his brothers are literally the stars around him as the sun. Like, he has dreams that they're all like flailing and, and he's this strength in the middle because he's got this hubris and teen uh, energy to him. But as he grows and matures, he no longer needs to be the center point of any of it. He needs to be the facilitator. And there's actually a great strength and strategy inside of being that facilitator.
6: Is there any material on Joseph that addresses this sort of metamorphosis? Because if he was the great strategist, he wouldn't have wound up
0: in a pit no, you're you're absolutely right uh there's a there's a, a good amount of material on joseph uh even if you just look inside of midrash and commentaries but i'd be happy to curate some of that and get it over to you because it is it's an interesting three-part narrative
3: yeah i mean there's a if he if you're interested there's a this uh book by this guy kugel from harvard you know that uh so he writes Uh, biblical commentary, but it's, it's, um, apparently according to him, I have no authority on this, but that the Joseph story is a kind of pretty popular rags to riches stories. It's not just a Jew. I mean, it is obviously in Genesis and it's our story and I'm not taking anything away from it, but, um, but that, that whole story of a guy arriving as a slave and and that that was a, that's a popular story that, that pops up according to,
0: uh, still today we we even look at in the, right, so it, it's, the business it's, world started in
3: the mailroom right it's, so it's and it's, now a, i'm the ceo right right so it's the actual but the actual narrative there, there's other narratives very similar to that it's yeah. sort of this you know horatio alger kind of story so it was kind of a popular um you know it it's, sure it's, it's a it's a very um it's not wholly a, a, a jewish uh genesis invention
1: but in the end, Joseph says this was God's plan. Yep. God did all of this. Yep. I didn't. Yep. And that somehow God was behind this whole story and he doesn't take credit for it.
0: I will say that as we, we close out Torah study, we say this blessing of the study of our text. We then are going to move into our Misha Berach and our Kaddish, which again is a kind of tradition's way of talking about this act of love and the way we care for those who are both here in need of healing as well as those who we've lost and need to uplift their name to continue to remember them both for our own sake and for the continuity of how we show respect and care for those who
5: we've lost.